Good afternoon, everyone. Good to see all of you. And greetings also to those who are not here physically with us, but may be listening somewhere. Jesus rebuked the scribes and Pharisees because while engrossed in minutiae, they had forgotten the weightier matters of the law, that is, judgment, mercy, and faith. As Jesus said in Matthew chapter 23, beginning with verse 23, Matthew 23 and verse 23, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faith. These things you ought to have done without leaving the others undone. Blind guides who strain at an gnat and swallow a camel. In these matters of judgment, mercy, and faith, it's very important to maintain a proper perspective, something the scribes and Pharisees fail to do. In the matter of judgment, we ought to keep firmly in mind that our powers of judgment are very limited. While there are matters that we must of necessity judge, final judgment belongs to God and all, without exception, are subject to His judgment. Each of us should examine himself carefully in light of Christ's indictment of the scribes and Pharisees. We could ask ourselves, for example, am I able to discern wisely and to render proper judgments? We might ask ourselves, am I all too willing to judge others harshly? over relatively trivial matters, as the scribes and Pharisees tended to do, and yet at the same time be undiscerning in matters of justice, mercy, and faith. We could also ask ourselves, am I too lenient in making judgments? Do I tend to make excuses for my own bad behavior or the bad behavior of others? And that's something that's becoming especially prevalent, it seems, in, in our age, as, as well as uh, harsh judgments made without a proper foundation. Both of those things are, are rampant and common in our society today. There are many facets to what is pictured by the Feast of Trumpets, which we're here to observe today, very prominent in what is pictured by that day, the Feast of Trumpets is that God is a judge. That Jesus Christ, when He returns to this earth, is returning in judgment. Today, in order to help us develop and maintain a, a fitting perspective on judgment, I want to discuss some of the prophecies concerning Christ's judgment on the earth and the principles relating to the manner in which Christ judges. God the Father, we're told, has committed all judgment to Jesus Christ, His Son. John 5 and verse 22. John 5 and verse 22. The Father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the Son. The prophecies of God's Word show that there are several different categories of people that Christ will judge. 
There is also a definite order in which these various peoples will be judged, or at least in order in which they will have a judgment administered to them. And as we discuss these in turn, we will also see the manner of judge that God is. And hopefully we can better understand the principles which govern God's approach to judgment. And of course, that's something that we should try to imitate. First, we need to understand that Christ is uniquely qualified to judge. Unlike any human judge, Christ is able to look beyond the outward appearance and look directly into the heart. God is a righteous judge. In Psalm 9 and verse 8, Psalm 9 and verse 8, it says, He shall judge the world in righteousness, and he shall administer judgment for the peoples in uprightness. God is able to peer into our innermost being and discern the very thoughts and intents of our hearts. As we read in Hebrews 4, beginning with verse 12, Hebrews 4 and verse 12, For the word of God is living and powerful, and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. So God is capable, as difficult as it may seem to conceive, he is capable of reading our very thoughts. He knows what we're thinking. And He knows our intents, the intentions of our minds and hearts. God is not limited to what He can see or hear in, a, in the same way that we are limited by our physical eyesight or physical hearing. In Isaiah 11 and verse 1, Isaiah 11 and verse 1, it, uh, it says, There shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. The Spirit of the Lord shall rest on him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge, and of the fear of the Lord. His delight is in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by the sight of his eyes, nor decide by the hearing of his ears. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall slay the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his loins and faithfulness the belt of his waist. Judges of this world look at evidence they hear testimony. They judge according to what is seen and heard. The judgments rendered may or may not be influenced by partiality or may or may not be rendered in accordance with unjust laws. But God's judgments go beyond what human beings can perceive. He weighs the spirits as well. As we read in Proverbs 16, now that doesn't mean, of course, that he doesn't make any uh, decisions based at least partly on what can be seen and heard, but he goes beyond that. 
Proverbs 16 and verse 2, it says, All the ways of a man are pure in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the spirits. The Lord weighs the spirits. God tests the minds and the hearts of mankind. In Psalm 7 and verse 9, Psalm 7 and verse 9, Oh, let the wickedness of the wicked come to an end, but establish the just for the righteous God tests the minds, or excuse me, tests the hearts and minds. For 6,000 years, God has, for the most part, kept hands off and allowed man to have his way on the earth. Only God has always had his witnesses on the earth. God has made known his laws, and his laws are the standard by which he expects men to live. God established his own government eventually, first in Israel, and later in the New Testament church, actually his government existed from the beginning, but as far as organized government among human beings, God established a government in Israel when he established the covenant with them. And although he had established his government, he nonetheless allowed the Israelites to make their own choices as free moral agents. He when, it, when God established his government, it did not mean that he removed their free moral agency. They were still free to choose. In fact, they were told that they must choose either to do right or wrong. They were required to make their choices. And they did make them as free moral agents. And usually they made the wrong choices despite the fact that God was ruling over them and established his government, they did not often cooperate with God's government. They usually rebelled against God. And God sent prophets to warn them and to rebuke them for their sins. And at times he intervened in, uh, in their affairs to punish them. Not every time they did something wrong or, or turned aside, but from time to time when things got to a certain point, God would intervene to punish them, and then he would later intervene to deliver them. That happened in Israel's history time and again. In a similar way, God has dealt with his church. When Christ came, as we've discussed in other sermons, the old covenant became obsolescent in a sense because it was being replaced by the new covenant relationship so far as the church was concerned and uh, Christ rules his church and yet Christ has allowed false teachers to come into his church false teachers have proliferated among those calling themselves Christian and in accordance with what was prophesied many not a few, but many have been deceived by false teachers teaching in the name of Christ, claiming to be a part of Christ's church. The church have, has been subverted many times down through history. In any given age, since the age of the apostles, the original apostles, only a remnant, few and scattered, have been faithful to God's word. Even within God's own church. 
And even then, among those few and scattered of the remnant, mistakes and sins remain. Over the centuries, God has, in a limited way, also executed judgment on the Gentile kingdoms of the world. But up to now, God's intervention in the world's affairs has been restrained and has only set a pattern for the final and complete judgment to come. The time of Christ's return, pictured by the Feast of Trumpets, is a time when God will set His hand to execute His judgment on the entire earth. Even though most are unaware of it, God is even now judging mankind and preparing to execute or administer His judgment. As we read in 1 Peter chapter 4, 1 Peter 4 and verse 5, they will give account to Him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this reason, the gospel was preached also to those who are dead. Now, that doesn't mean he preached to them while they were dead. He preached to them while they were alive, but since that time they've died. But Christ has preached, that the gospel has been preached through Christ's emissaries and through Christ himself when he was on the earth. But the gospel has been preached from the very beginning of man's history uh, down through the ages. It goes on to say that the reason the gospel was preached to those who have died as well as those who are still living is that they might be judged according to men in the flesh but live according to God in the Spirit. In 1 Peter 2 and verse 1, 1 Peter 2 and verse 1, it says, There were also false prophets among the people, even as there will be false teachers among you. What, Paul, what uh, Peter is saying is that just as there were false prophets in ancient Israel, there will be false teachers within the church who will secretly bring in destructive heresies even denying the Lord who bought them and bring on themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their destructive ways because of whom the way of truth will be blasphemed. Notice it says many will follow their destructive ways. Not a few, but many. By covetousness they will exploit you with deceptive words. For a long time their judgment has not been idle and their destruction does not slumber. For God, if God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment and did not spare the ancient world, but saved Noah, one of eight people, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood on the world of the ungodly and turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them to destruction, making them an example who afterwards would live ungodly and delivered righteous Lot, who was oppressed by the filthy conduct of the wicked, for that righteous man dwelling among them tormented his righteous soul from day to day by seeing and hearing their lawless deeds, then the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations and to reserve the unjust under punishment for the day of judgment. So God knows what He's doing. Now, Sometimes we may 
look around and see things that are happening, say, where is, uh, where is God in all of this? And uh, why is it that people seem to be running amok and doing all sorts of evil and getting away with it? Well, they're not, not getting away with it, at least not permanently, because they are going to have to face their judge and creator. And they will be brought to uh, heal for their deeds. We mentioned earlier that God judges the church and the peoples of Israel and the Gentile kingdoms, the people of Israel, meaning the physical descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But according to Scripture, judgment in terms of salvation begins with us, begins with the house of God. In 1 Peter 4 and verse 17, Peter said, 1 Peter 4 and verse 17, For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? That's just from the English Standard Version, which I believe is a bit clearer in this particular verse. Judgment begins at the household of God, and as Peter wrote, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey, who are not even trying to obey the gospel of God? Judgment can mean several different things, depending on the context. It can mean weighing the evidence and making a judgment or a decision. Or it can also mean executing or administering a decision once a decision is made. Whether it be administering a sentence in a case where a judgment has been made or administering laws. The scriptures tell us of a time for the dead to be judged at the end of this age. Now this particular judgment that will occur for the dead at the end of this age is principally a judgment for the church. It is the time that the judgment of those who have been converted during the period leading up to Christ's coming will be administered. And they will either be resurrected from their graves or not. Those who have been faithful to their commitment to Christ will be resurrected at that time. As we read in 11, Revelation 11 and verse 15, Revelation 11 and verse 15, it says, The seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of His Christ, and He shall reign forever and ever. The seventh trumpet, this is what it's talking about, the seventh angel blowing the seven trumpets of Revelation. The seventh trumpet, the last one, signals the return of Jesus Christ to the earth and the time when the kingdoms of this world will become His kingdoms in the sense that He will begin to reign over them directly. All the governments of this world will be consumed and superseded by the government of Christ. And it says, The twenty-four elders who sat before God on their thrones fell on their faces and worshipped God 
saying, We give you thanks, O Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was and who is to come, because you have taken your great power and reigned. The nations were angry, and your wrath has come, and the time of the dead that they should be judged, and that you should reward your servants, the prophets and the saints, and those who fear your name, small and great, and should destroy those who destroy the earth. So the dead that will be judged at that particular time are those who have been the prophets and the, the saints of God, that is, people who were converted and separated from the world through the Holy Spirit, and they will receive their reward at that time. Those judged worthy to attain the first resurrection will be resurrected, as we read in 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 22, For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. But each one in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, afterward those who are Christ at his coming. So everyone who has lived and died will be resurrected sooner or later, but each one in, in his own order. But the ones who will be resurrected at the time of Christ's coming are the first fruits, as they are spoken of, the first fruits of the Holy Spirit, the first fruits of those to be born into the family of God through the resurrection. In Luke 20 and verse 35, Luke 20 and verse 35, it says, But those who are counted worthy to attain that age and the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage, nor can they die anymore, for they are equal to the angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. Equal to angels simply means it doesn't mean that they are on the same plane as the angels. Actually, the angels will be on a lower plane once these people are resurrected. But it means that they are equal in the sense that they will not be subject to death. They will be spirit. They will be eternal, eternally living creatures of God. And they will be sons of God, that is, being sons of the resurrection born into the family of God, so to speak, through the resurrection. Notice he said those counted worthy to attain that age. How does God judge one's worthiness to attain that age? In 2 Thessalonians 1, 2 Thessalonians 1 and verse 2, says, We give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers, remembering without ceasing your work of faith, labor of love, and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of our God and Father. So in writing to the Thessalonians, Paul said that he was uh, mindful of the work of faith, the labor of love, and their patience in hoping for the promise of salvation through Jesus Christ. They were enduring in faith. They were enduring not only the ordinary trials and tribulations of life, but persecution. They were laboring in love, he said. And they were patient in their hope and commitment to Jesus Christ. 
These are the things that Christ is looking at as He judges our worthiness. Many scriptures reveal that we are being tested, that we will be tested through trials. In Psalm 66 and verse 8, we read, O bless our God, you peoples, and make the voice of His praise to be heard who keeps our soul among the living and does not allow our feet to be moved. For you, O God, have tested us. You have refined us as silver is refined. You brought us into the net. You laid affliction on our backs. Not that God always necessarily brings affliction directly, but He allows us to be afflicted. You've caused men to ride over our heads. We went through fire and through water. But you brought us out to rich fulfillment. God allows us to go through trials, but eventually He delivers us. By the way, we need to understand that often when the Bible speaks of God doing something, as in this case, it is not necessarily speaking of Him doing something directly. Quite often, depending on the context, it may mean that God allows things to happen. Not that He causes them directly, but but that He allows these things to happen and He allows them to happen for a purpose. And in, in that sense, it may be His will for them to happen because He allows them to happen. But He always has a purpose for what He allows. Why does God allow false teachers in the church, for example, or other trials to afflict people in the church? Actually, there are a number of reasons there are a number of purposes that our trials serve. They can help us, for one thing, to see our weaknesses, to reveal our weaknesses, not only to God but to us, if we're alert to the lessons that we can learn from our trials. They test our commitment. They can help us to develop godly character as we endure trials, they can help us to learn humility. They can teach us that we can't rely only on ourselves, but that looking to God, we cannot fail. We can very readily fail if we fail to look to God and depend on our own strength. But if we look to God and have God's help, we cannot fail. Trials can refine and purify us. We read in Daniel 11, Daniel 11, verse 32, of the time approaching the end of this age and the emergence of the beast power and the individual who will lead that government, who is also called the beast in Revelation. And it says... Those who do wickedly against the covenant, he shall corrupt with flattery. But the people who know their God shall be strong and carry out great exploits. And those of the people who understand shall instruct many. Yet for many days they shall fall by sword and flame, by captivity and plundering. Now when they fall, they shall be aided with a little help but many will join them by intrigue. 
and some of those of, of understanding shall fall to refine them, purify them, and make them white until the time of the end, because it is still for the appointed time. So notice that even though there will be those who will be standing fast and giving their testimony in whatever way that's going to be done in individual cases, they will be subject to persecution. As it says, by sword, flame, captivity, and plundering. Some will fall. That is implying that probably some will be killed and perhaps some will even fall in, a, in the sense of, of uh, falling away from the truth. It could apply either way. The purpose of this is to refine and to purify and to make white the body of Christ, to purge us of, of sin, to, to uh, help us develop further the kind of character that God wants us to have. In 1 Peter 1, 1 Peter 1 verse 3, it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Whom, having not seen, you love, though now you do not see him, yet believing, you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So again, Peter tells us that our faith, the genuineness of our faith is tested by trials, as though by fire, as silver or gold are refined in the fire. In verse 13, he continues, Therefore gird up the loins of your mind, be sober and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lusts, as in your ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Because it is written, Be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on the Father, who without partiality judges according to each one's work. Now again, we've already been told that, that the Father has given judgment over to Jesus Christ. So the Father is judging, but He is doing it through Christ. If you call on the Father, who without partiality judges according to each one's work. Now notice, what he judges here, what the standard is. He judges according to each one's work. Seeing that 
that is being done, conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear, knowing that you were redeemed with, were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish, without spot. We're being judged according to our works. We have been redeemed from death through the blood of Jesus Christ. We've had the death penalty removed from over our heads through his sacrifice. But contrary to what many teach, that does not mean that we are not expected to do those things that are pleasing to God, that we are required to do those things pleasing to God if we expect to have salvation. In 1 Peter 4 and verse 17, 1 Peter 4 and verse 17, it says the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? Now, if the righteous one is scarcely saved, where will the ungodly and sinner appear? Therefore, let those who suffer according to the will of God commit their souls to him in doing good as to a faithful creator. Notice we commit our souls to God's care in doing good. Not just doing what we want to do without regard to God's laws, but in doing good, which and good is defined by God's laws. Yes, we must have mercy to have salvation. Without mercy, there is no salvation for us. Nevertheless, we're being judged according to our works. The works that we do, having come to understand the truth, repented of our sins, and then striving to please God in our conduct. God allows us to endure trials to build and strengthen our faith. Think about the Israelites in Egypt. What if the Egyptians had allowed Israel to leave on the first request? First time Pharaoh was approached with the request or the demand to let the Israelites go, what if he said, okay, you can go? The people, if that had occurred, the people of Israel would never have seen God's power demonstrated as it was to deliver them. And the Egyptians, for that matter, would not have seen it either. The demonstrating of God's power was a testimony to both of them. But for the Israelites to see the power of God, they had to endure trials. It wasn't just the Egyptians who suffered. It was the Israelites who suffered to an extent as well. And they had to endure many trials before they finally entered the promised land to which God was taking them. It's no different in principle from what we must endure as well. As we look to God in trials, we can learn to develop greater faith. 
God will allow His church to be persecuted and tried and tested. But part of the reward at the time of Christ's return for us, for those in the resurrection, is rest. Rest from all of those evils, deliverance from them, and punishment on our persecutors. In 2 Thessalonians 1 and verse 3, 2 Thessalonians 1 verse 3, Paul said, We are bound to thank God always for you, brethren, as it is fitting because your faith grows exceedingly. And the love of every one of you all abounds toward each other. So that we ourselves boast of you among the churches of God for your patience and faith in all your persecutions and tribulations that you endure which is the manifest evidence of the righteous judgment of God. Now, notice he said that they were an example of patience and faith in the midst of persecutions and tribulations. And that was a manifestation of the righteous judgment of God. that you may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you also suffer. As God judges our patience and faith in the midst of trials and persecutions, that is an indication that we are worthy of His kingdom in His sight. If we persevere, as, as He said the Thessalonians were doing, but he goes on to say, since it is a righteous thing with God to repay with tribulation those who trouble you and to give you who are troubled rest with us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. These shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. When He comes in that day to be glorified in His saints and to be admired among all those who believe, because our testimony among you was believed. Therefore we also pray always for you that our God would count you worthy of this calling and fulfill all the good pleasure of His goodness and the work of faith with power. Notice that the work of faith is mentioned here, the work of faith with power. Again, Paul mentions work here, as we've read in other scriptures. Faith produces works. Real faith, godly faith, produces fruits. And that is what we are judged, being judged by. God is judging us according to the work that is accomplished in us through faith, through godly faith. And God judges according to our works or deeds because it is the uh, product of our faith, the works that we do. 
It's an indication of our faith. In Romans 2, Romans 2 and verse 1, it says, Therefore you are inexcusable, O man, whoever you are who judge. For in whatever you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. So if, if we are making judgments and condemning others for doing whatever we might be condemning them for, if we're doing the same thing, we're condemning ourselves. He goes on to say, we know that the judgment of God is according to truth against those who practice such things. And he had named numerous things that he's referring to in chapter 1. He said, do you think this, O man, you who judge those practicing such things and doing the same that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you despise the riches of his goodness and forbearance and long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? But in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart, you are treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to each one according to his deeds." will render to each one according to his deeds eternal life to those who by patient continuance in doing good seek for glory, honor, and immortality, but to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation, and wrath, tribulation and anguish on every soul of man who does evil of the Jew first and also of the Greek but glory, honor, and peace to everyone who works what is good. To the Jew first and also to the Greek, for there is no partiality with God. It's very clear what God is judging us by. and It has to do directly with the way we live our lives in accordance with the standard by which he judges, which is his law. In today's world, and perhaps even in the church, all too often we see many doing the very things for which they are accusing and judging others. Laodicea, the word Laodicea, which is a Greek word, means judgment of the people, or the people judge. And that seems to fit very well with what is happening, not only in today's world, but perhaps even within the church where all too many are willing to judge matters they don't understand and even to speak evil of and condemn others unjustly, often based on slander. Yet the Laodiceans, we're told, lack the capacity to even judge themselves properly. As we read in Revelation chapter 3, Revelation 3 and verse 17, it says, Because you say, I am rich, he's speaking here to the Laodiceans, the Laodicean church, which is, among other things, an era of the church and very likely the era in which we are living now. But it says, Because you say I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing. Now this isn't speaking necessarily of physical wealth, although it could include that. 
but it is relating more to the a spiritual a pride, an attitude that spiritually there's nothing more to be to be gained. That they have everything they need from a spiritual standpoint. So the attitude is, I'm rich, I become wealthy, I've need of nothing. In other words, I, I know everything I need to know. I don't need to grow or develop spiritually any longer. I've, I've reached the, uh, the level which I need to reach to be comfortable with my relationship with God, and I don't need anything more. But Christ goes on to say, and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. In their view, they were wealthy and rich and had need of nothing. In Christ's view, they are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. One of the problems with the Pharisees at the time of Jesus' sojourn on earth is that they often judged others severely, but were unable or unwilling to judge themselves. And there's a lesson in that for all of us. We can all learn. That's why it's in the Bible, so we can learn not to imitate that example. Notice what Luke 18 and verse 9 tells us about Christ as he spoke a parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. Two men, he said, went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. And the Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I, that I possess. And the tax collector standing afar off would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and he who humbles himself will be exalted. The fact is, both of them were sinners, but only one of them knew that he was a sinner. Only one of them acknowledged that he was a sinner. And if you don't have the insight to acknowledge that you are a sinner and how wretched and miserable you are, then you don't have much of a foundation to make further progress spiritually. And we have a lot of people around these days that want to tell us how, how great they are and how worthless others are, even individuals that claim to be a part of the church of God. First Corinthians 11, verse 31, First Corinthians 11, verse 31, we're told, if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened by the Lord that we may not be condemned with the world. We're told that we are to judge ourselves. But we need to judge ourselves with the right kind of spiritual insight, not like we read about the Laodiceans or like the Pharisees who were judging themselves, but they were coming to the wrong conclusions. 
We mustn't judge ourselves by how we think we compare with others, but by the standard of God's Word, because that's what we're being judged by. We're not being judged according to what Joe Blow down the street's doing. We're being judged by the standard of God's Word. In 2 Corinthians 10, verse 12, 2 Corinthians 10, verse 12, it says, We dare not class ourselves or compare ourselves with those who commend themselves. We need to be very careful about bragging about ourselves and how righteous we are. Or how much better we are than somebody else. We dare not class ourselves or compare ourselves with those who commend themselves, but they measuring themselves by themselves, in other words, comparing themselves with others and comparing themselves among themselves are not wise. That's not how to approach judging ourselves. It's not even how to, to approach judging others, especially not ourselves. In John 12, verse 47, it says, If anyone hears my words and does not believe, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. He who rejects me and does not receive my words has that which judges him. The word that I have spoken will judge him in the last day. That's what we're being judged by. The word of God. Not by what other people do or how we stack up with them. So what we need to ask ourselves is how does my conduct measure up to the standard of Jesus Christ and His Word, His commandments, His example? The fact that we are judged by our works according to the standard of God's Word, however, does not mean that we earn salvation by our works. It does not mean that we earn a place in God's kingdom. Notice in Ephesians 2 and verse 4, and this is a charge that's often made when we point out that God judges you by your works, then they say, well, that means you're earning salvation. No, it doesn't. In Ephesians 2 and verse 4, it says, But God, who is rich in mercy, because of His great love which he loved us, with which He loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, it says, or as it could be translated, by grace you are being saved, as it is in the Green's literal translation, which is probably a better rendering of this phrase, because it is true that we have been saved in a sense, having had the death penalty removed from us, but in another sense we are in the process of being saved, because we could yet... Uh, fail. We could fall away. We, we could fail to remain faithful. So, we have been saved in a sense. We are being saved in another sense because ultimately salvation depends on our remaining faithful. But the point is that we are saved by the grace of God goes on to say in verse 6, and raised us up together and made us sit together 
in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So we're not saved by the works that we have done, but we are saved by grace for good works. And we are saved through faith, but created unto good works, as he said. What work could you do that you could say that God owes you eternal life? What could you do that where you could reach the conclusion, or anyone else could, that God owes you eternal life? If you lived a perfect life, if you were born and lived without ever sinning for, say, 70 years, the, the normal uh, lifespan of human beings. God would owe you nothing. He would no owe you absolutely nothing. The only thing we can earn by our works is condemnation, death. And that's what we have earned by our sins. Yet having repented and been forgiven of our sins through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, we must walk in faith toward God to remain under grace. Otherwise, we won't remain under grace. Faith is required for salvation. And faith is manifested by our works. Your works tell you the nature of your faith and its extent. In James 2 and verse 12, it says, So speak and so do as being about to be judged by the law of liberty. Again, the standard by which God judges is His law. Referred to here as the law of liberty. In James 2 and verse 17, James 2 and verse 17, it says, Thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. In other words, it's a sham faith. It's not real. It, it, it produces nothing. It's fruitless. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works and I will show you my faith by my works. If you, be, uh, you believe that there is one God, you do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. But do you want to know, foolish man, that faith without works is dead? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? Do you see that faith was working together with his works? And by works faith was made perfect. And the scripture was fulfilled which says Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now what if Abraham had refused to do what God told him to do? Would he have been counted, accounted faithful? No. And if we don't do what God tells us to do, we won't be counted faithful either. 
James goes on to say, verse 23, he was called the friend of God. You see that then that a man is justified by works and not by faith only. Likewise not, was not Rahab the harlot who just also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out in another way? For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. So according to Scripture, works of righteousness are rooted in godly faith. And your faith is demonstrated by the works that you do. Our character is reflected in our deeds. In Psalm 50 and verse 3, Psalm 50 and verse 3, it says, Our God shall come and sh shall not keep silent. A fire shall devour before him, and it shall be very tempestuous all around him. He shall call to the heavens from above and to the earth that he may judge his people. Gather my saints together me, those who have made a covenant with me by sacrifice. Let the heavens declare his righteousness, for God himself is judge. Going on in verse 16, it says, But to the wicked God says, What right have you to declare my statutes or take my covenant in your mouth, seeing you hate instruction and cast my words behind you? When you saw a thief, you consented with him and have been partaker with adulterers. You give your mouth to evil and your tongue frames deceit. You sit and speak against your brother. You slander your own mother's son. These things you have done and I kept silent. You thought that I was altogether like you, but I will rebuke you and set them in order before my, your eyes. Now consider this, you who forget God, lest I tear you in pieces and there be none to deliver. Whoever offers praise glorifies me, and to him who orders his conduct aright, I will show the salvation of God. God is going to give salvation to those who have yielded to him and allowed him to build in them his righteous character. Ephesians 1 verse 5, Ephesians 1 verse 5, it says, Having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace by which he has made us accepted in the Beloved. Notice that we are sons of God not because we deserve to be, not because we have earned it, but according to the pleasure of God, because it is His will that we be His sons. Not a debt that He has to pay us, not something that He owes us, but it is His will according to his pleasure, to make us his sons. And that's the only reason that we have the potential to become his sons. Not because he owes us salvation or owes us anything, but because God is merciful and gracious, and it is his pleasure and his will to make us his sons, and he will make us acceptable in his sight if we let him if we cooperate with Him. It is God's good pleasure to give us the kingdom. Now God is a, a righteous judge, but He is also a merciful judge. Otherwise, we would have no hope. 
But God wants to give us His kingdom. That's why He created humans to begin with. God doesn't want to see humanity destroyed. He doesn't want to see you destroyed or me. He wants to see everybody in His kingdom. But He leaves the ultimate decision up to us as to whether we're willing to meet His terms or not. But Jesus said in Luke 12, verse 31, Seek the kingdom of God, and all these things shall be added to you. Do not fear, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. We have to seek the kingdom, but it is God's good pleasure to give it to us. He wants to give it to us. God has laid out, I think, pretty clearly what our responsibilities are for us to attain that goal, His kingdom. And we're, none of us is likely to be absolutely perfect in this lifetime. What we need to do, though, is keep striving. And remember the publican and the Pharisee. The, the, the publican acknowledged that he was a sinner and needed, needed God's forgiveness and mercy. And we will continue to need God's forgiveness and mercy the rest of our lives. We also need to be striving diligently to put sin out of our lives. We saw earlier that judgment begins with the household of God, that is the church of God. In a larger sense, the household of God also includes Israel, the physical descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And as with the church, God will also judge Israel. Israel is being given a, a chance to repent. They have been given many chances over the centuries to repent. And they have no excuse not to have repented. The Bible is not an inaccessible book. There are millions, billions of Bibles that have been printed. Everything's in there that people need to know for salvation. God has made it available. God has sent His prophets, His ministers to preach the gospel. But Israel has steadfastly refused time after time to listen to what God has to say. And they have refused to repent. And because they have refused and are refusing and will refuse to repent, although there will continue to be a, a testimony and a witness, God will allow tribulation to befall the people, unlike anything that's ever happened in history. Ezekiel 7 and verse 2. Ezekiel 7 and verse 2, it says, You son of man, thus says the, the Lord God to the land of Israel, an end, the end has come upon the four corners of the land. Now the end has come upon you and I will send my anger against you. I will judge you according to your ways. See, Israel is being judged by the very same standard. Their ways, their deeds. I will repay you for all your abominations. My eye will not spare you, 
nor will I have pity, but I will repay your ways, and your abominations will be in your midst. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, a disaster, a singular disaster. Behold, it has come, or in other words, it's about to come. An end has come, the end has come, it has dawned for you. Behold, it has come. Doom has come to you, you who dwell in the land. The time has come, a day of trouble is near. And not of rejoicing in the mountains. Now upon you, I will soon pour out my fury and spend my anger upon you. I will judge you according to your ways and repay you for your abominations. My eye will not spare, nor will I have pity. I will repay you according to your ways, and your abominations will be in your midst. Then you will know that I am the Lord who strikes. Going on in verse 23 of Ezekiel 7, it says, Make a chain, for the land is filled with crimes of blood, and the city is full of violence. If you don't believe it, just listen to the news for a while or pick up the daily newspaper and read it. Therefore I will bring the worst of the Gentiles and they shall possess their houses. I will cause the pomp of the strong to cease. They will seek peace, but there shall be none. Disaster will come upon disaster and a rumor upon rumor. They will seek a vision from a prophet, but the law will perish from the priest and counsel from the elders. The king will mourn, the prince will be clothed with desolation and the hands of the common people will tremble. I will do to them according to their way, and according to what they deserve, I will judge them. Then they shall know that I am the Lord. Many in the church of God, along with physical Israel, will be judged in part in the tribulation, which is what is being spoken of here. And... Jeremiah also wrote about it in Jeremiah 5, beginning with verse 1. He said, Run to and fro through the streets of Jerusalem. See now and know and seek in her open places. If you can find a man, is there anyone who executes judgment, who seeks the truth, and I will pardon her? Though they say, as the Lord lives, surely they swear falsely. Lord, are not your eyes on the truth? You have stricken them, but they have not grieved. You have consumed them, but they have refused to receive correction. They have made their faces harder than rock. They have refused to return. Therefore I said, Surely these are poor, they are foolish, for they do not know the way of the Lord, the judgment of their God. Going on in verse 23, he says, This people has a defiant and rebellious heart. They have revolted and departed. They do not say in their heart, Let us now fear the Lord our God who gives rain, both the former and the latter in its season. He reserves for us the weeks appointed for the harvest. Your iniquities have turned these things away, and your sins have withheld good from you. For among my people are found wicked men. They lie in wait as one who sets snares. They set a trap. They catch men. As a cage is full of birds, so their houses are full of deceit. Therefore they have become great and grown rich. They have grown fat. They are sleek. Yet they surpass the deeds of the wicked. They do not please, plead the cause, the cause of the fatherless. Yet they prosper. 
and the right of the needy they do not defend. Shall I not punish them for these things, says the Lord? Shall I not avenge myself on such a nation as this? An astonishing and horrible thing has been committed in the land. The prophets prophesy falsely, and the priests rule by their own power. And my people love to have it so, but what will you do in the end? Going on in Jeremiah chapter 6 and verse 10, he says, To whom shall I speak and give warning that they may hear? Indeed, their ear is uncircumcised and they cannot give heed. Behold, the word of the Lord is a reproach to them. They have no delight in it. Therefore, I am full of the fury of the Lord. I am weary of holding it in. I will pour it out on the children outside and on the assembly of young men together. For even the husband shall be taken with the wife, the aged with him who is full of days. And their houses shall be turned over to others. Fields and wives together, for I will stretch out my hand against the inhabitants of the land, says the Lord. Because from the least of them, even to the greatest of them, everyone is given to covetousness. And from the prophet to the priest, everyone deals falsely. They have also healed the herd of my people slightly, saying, Peace, peace, when there is no peace. Were they ashamed when they had committed abomination? No, they were not at all ashamed. Nor did they know how to blush. Do people even know how to blush anymore? That's the state we're in. Therefore they shall fall among those who fall. At the time I punish them, they shall be cast down, says the Lord. Thus says the Lord, stand in the ways and see and ask for the old paths. Where the good way is and walk in it, then you will find rest for your souls. But they said, we will not walk in it. Also I set watchmen over you, saying, listen to the sound of the trumpet. But they said, we will not listen. Therefore hear you nations, and know, O congregation, what is among them. Hear, O earth, behold, I will certainly bring calamity upon this people, the fruit of their thoughts, because they have not heeded my words nor my law, but rejected it. Going on in verse 22, Thus says the Lord, Behold, a people comes from the north country. A great nation will be raised from the farthest parts of the earth. They will lay hold on bow and spear. They are cruel and have no mercy. Their voice roars like the sea. They ride on horses as men of war set in array against you, O daughter of Zion. We have heard the report of it. Our hands grow feeble. Anguish has taken hold of us. Pain as of a woman in labor. Do not go out into the field nor walk by the way because of the sword of the enemy. Fear is on every side. So this is a prophecy of what is to come for the peoples of Israel, the Israelite nations because they have adamantly refused to walk in the way of God's laws and have willfully and deliberately rejected them. Moses warned Israel what would happen to them as a result of turning from God and rebelling against his laws. And in Deuteronomy 31, 
and 32, we read a prophecy for the latter days, which was fulfilled in type by ancient Israel, but is awaiting a yet future fulfillment at the end time. As we read in Deuteronomy 31 and verse 29, Deuteronomy 31 verse 29, Moses said to the Israelites, I know that after my death you will become utterly corrupt and turn aside from the way which I have commanded you and evil will befall you in the latter days because you will do evil in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger through the work of your hands. So this is a prophecy for the latter days and continues on in Deuteronomy 32 and verse 36, for the Lord will judge his people and have compassion on his servants. When he sees that their power is gone and that there is no one remaining bond or free. He's talking about Israel here. He will say, where are their gods, the rock in which they sought refuge, who ate the fat of their sacrifices and drank the wine of their drink offering? Let them rise up and help you and be your refuge. Now see that I, even I, am he, and there is no God besides me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal, nor is there anyone who can deliver from my hand. For I raise my hand to heaven and say, as I live forever, if I whet my glittering sword and my hand takes hold of judgment, I will render vengeance to my enemies and repay those who hate me. I will make my arrows drunk with blood and my sword shall devour flesh with the blood of the slain and the captives from the heads of the leaders of the enemy. Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. For he will avenge the blood of his servants and render vengeance to his adversaries. He will provide atonement for his land and his people. God punishes, but God also restores. It is a fearful thing, as Scripture says, to fall into the hands of the living God. But that is coming for our people. And when God has humbled Israel, he will punish the Gentile kingdoms. In the midst of their tribulation, Israel will look to God and they will seek God. Finally, in Hosea 5 and verse 15, Hosea 5 and verse 15 says, I will re return again to my place till they acknowledge their offense, speaking to Israel. Then they will seek my face in their affliction. They will earnestly seek me. Come and let us return to the Lord. He has torn, but he will heal us. He has stricken, but he will bind us up. After two days, now remember in uh, the Bible in speaking prophetically often uses the day for a year principle. And this indicates that after two days or two years of being in captivity, he will revive us. On the third day, he will raise us up that we may live in his sight. God will begin to intervene for the people of Israel in their captivity and the tribulation in the third year of their captivity. This tribulation, other prophecies indicate, will last for three and a half years. 
Going on in verse 3, it says, Let us know, let us pursue the knowledge of the Lord. His going forth is established as the morning. He will come to us like the rain, like the latter and former rain to the earth. It's going to take the tribulation to bring the people of Israel, the remnant of Israel, to this state of mind where they're ready to repent, to listen to God. And God will begin to intervene to save Israel out of their captivity and he will also in the final year of the tribulation pour out judgment upon the Gentile nations. In Zechariah 1 verse 14, Zechariah 1 verse 14, So the angel who spoke with me said to me, Proclaim, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I am zealous for Jerusalem and for Zion with great zeal. I am exceedingly angry with the nations at ease. For I was a little angry, and they helped, but with evil intent. What he's talking about is the violence and the rapacity with which the Gentiles will fall upon the Israelite peoples to destroy them. And that will not please God, even though God will use them as his instrument. In Psalm 75, Psalm 75, verse 2, When I choose a proper time, I will judge uprightly the earth and all its inhabitants are dissolved. I set up its pillars firmly. I said to the boastful, you do not deal boastfully, and to the wicked do not lift up the horn. Do not lift up your horn on high. Do not speak with a stiff neck. For exaltation comes neither from the east nor from the west nor from the south, but God is the judge. He puts down one and exalts another. For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup and the wine is red. It is fully mixed. He pours it out. Surely its dregs shall all the wicked of the earth drain and drink down. But I will declare forever, I will sing praises to the God of Jacob. All the horns of the wicked I will also cut off, but the horns of the righteous will be exalted. And this will be the final outcome of God's judgment. In Psalm 76, beginning with verse 1, in Judah, God is known. His name is great in Israel. In Salem also is his tabernacle and his dwelling place in Zion. There he broke the arrows of the bow, the shield, and the sword of battle. You are more glorious and excellent than the mountains of prey. The stout-hearted were plundered. They have sunk into their sleep. And none of the mighty men have found use of their hands. At your rebuke, O God of Jacob, both the chariot and horse were cast into a dead sleep. But you yourself are to be feared, and who may stand in your presence once when, you, uh, when once you are angry. You caused judgment to be heard from heaven. The earth feared and was still. When God arose to judgment to deliver all the oppressed of the earth, God will set his hand to deliver the oppressed of the earth. He's going to put an end to these oppressive, evil governments of mankind. Revelation 15, verse 1. Revelation 15, verse 1. Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels having the seven last plagues, for in them the wrath of God is complete. These plagues will be poured out. 
near the end of the age, approaching the time of Christ's return. Verse 3, it says, They sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous of your works, O Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of saints. Who shall not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy, for all nations shall come and worship before you, for your judgments have been manifested. When God's judgments are made manifest, the final result was is that all nations will come before God to worship Him. And that's why God is pouring out these judgments. That's why God is executing His wrath to bring the world to a state of mind where they're willing to accept God as their ruler. From the time of Adam and Eve, mankind has rejected God as the ruler of the earth. But finally, God's judgments will be manifested in such a way that men will be willing to accept God. In Revelation 16, verse 4, it says, Revelation 16, verse 4, the third angel poured out his bowl on the rivers and springs of water, and they became blood. And I heard the angel of the waters saying, You are righteous, O Lord, the one who is and who was and who is to be, because you have judged these things. For they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink, for it is their just due. And I heard another from the altar saying, Even so, Lord God Almighty, true and righteous are your judgments. Then in Revelation 18, verse 1, we read, After these things I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was illuminated with his glory. And he cried mightily with a loud voice, saying, Babylon the great is fallen is fallen and has become a dwelling place of demons, a prison for every foul spirit and a cage for every unclean and hated bird. The great false system of government and religion will be destroyed. In verse 5 it goes on to say, Her sins have reached to heaven and God has remembered her iniquities, render to her just as she has rendered to you and repay her double according to her works. In the cup which she has mixed, mix double for her. In the measure that she glorified herself and lived, lived uh, luxuriously, in the same measure give her torment and sorrow. For she says in her heart, I sit as a queen and am no widow and will not see sorrow. Therefore her plagues will come in one day, death and mourning and famine, and she will be utterly burned with fire, for strong is the Lord who judges her. Verse 21, Then a mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea, saying, Thus with violence the great city, Babylon, shall be thrown down and shall not be found any more. The sound of harpists, musicians, flutists, and trumpeters, shall not be heard in you any more, nor craftsmen of any craft shall be found in you any more. The sound of a millstone shall not be heard in you any more. The light of a lamp shall not shine in you any more. And the voice 
of bridegroom and bride shall not be heard in you anymore. For your merchants were the great men of the earth. <clears throat> By your sorcery, all nations were deceived. And in her was found the blood of prophets and of saints and all those who were slain on the earth. Then in Revelation 19, verse 1, After these things I heard a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and honor and power belong to the Lord our God, for true and righteous are his judgments, because he judged, he has judged the great harlot who corrupted the earth with her fornication, and he has avenged on her the blood of his servant shed by her. Christ is coming to rule the earth. Christ will put an end to oppression. As we read in Psalm 9, verse 8, He shall judge the world in righteousness. He shall administer judgment for the peoples in uprightness. The Lord will be a refuge for the oppressed, a refuge in times of trouble. In Psalm 10, and verse 17, we read, Lord, you have heard the desire of the humble. You will prepare their heart. You will cause their ear to hear, to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed, that the man of the earth may oppress no more. Peace will be established through the judgment of Christ. As we read in Isaiah 2 and verse 2, Now it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be exalt, uh, established on the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills, and all nations shall flow to it. Many people will come and say, Come and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways and we shall walk in his paths for out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord for, from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and rebuke many people. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation neither shall they learn war anymore. Through Christ's judgment, all the causes of sorrow, misery, and unhappiness will be eliminated. Through His judgment, the millennial vision of a world of peace, stability, and universal happiness will be made a reality. <clears throat>